Hey folks, Tony Russo here from the So What's Your Story podcast. We're planning a series of live storytelling events starting in March, and we'd love for you to be a part of it. The concept is simple. We're inviting folks to stand up, no notes, and tell a cool story. The event is called Tell Your Story Live. You can find out all about it by visiting our website and clicking on the link. You'll see all the rules and details, as well as a form for you to submit your story idea. Find us at SoWhatsYourStoryPodcast.com. Here's the show. I always liked writing, and I have saved things forever. I have files, um, originally in notebooks. I have these black sketchbooks, and they go back to college days, and I'd write ideas down, and essays and things like that, and ideas for stories. But I never really thought I would necessarily be a writer. And then I was writing curriculum for critical thinking skills, things I wasn't had no knowledge of, and I'd say, well, if I can do this, why don't I write about something I like? Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, their stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have Bruce Hansen, author of For the Record, Confessions of a Vinyl Soundtrack Junkie. Born in Brooklyn, he trained as an artist in New York City and earned his MFA from the City College of New York in 1979. Throughout his teaching career in the visual arts, he penned several plays and a few books. Today, he's joining us to talk about his most recent book, which chronicles his lifelong love affair with vinyl records and music. So welcome to the podcast, Bruce. Thanks. Excited to be here. When I started reading For the Record, one of the things that immediately caught me and I was like, okay, he got the title right with Confessions of a Junkie because you as a little boy had these comic books and you sell them for soundtracks for vinyl records. Yeah, I guess I was a comic junkie too. And I think at the age of 10 and 11, I was like, this is what I'm going to be doing the rest of my life. Everything was sorted and I had the prices, what they're worth. And then at something around uh, the age of 12 or so, I said, I need to grow up. And what's my other interest? And I loved music and um, particularly soundtracks from films because I hadn't really been exposed to Broadway musicals yet. And I just <laughs> I went with my friends up to the Bronx, sold my collection for $200. That's wow. Like 19 something. Blah. That's a lot of money for um, a 12 year old. Yeah. And I immediately said, I'm not reporting this to my parents. And uh, I went into the village. Um, Greenwich Village in New York City, and I bought records of show of movies I had seen when I was living in Minnesota. My parents had been divorced, and we were left with relatives for about a year. And movies, I guess, were the only thing I really could escape to. And I love movie musicals, so I bought. I mean, things like The Wizard of Oz, Unsinkable Molly Brown, Kiss Me Kate, <laughs> Just yeah. stuff that a, your average eleven or twelve year old wouldn't. Be interested <laughs> sure. In. <laughs> Sure. And so then and there also in in your book, you have this really incredible moment where you talk about, you know, trying to fit in and trying to figure out how you're going to be in the school. And then there's this moment where you go and you sing Wizard of Oz as, as a 12 year old boy in sixth grade, you perform the entire Wizard of Oz for your class. And then at the end of that chapter, you announce, I felt safe on the playground. Yeah. So, uh, 
to understand what happened, this is like, and I don't want to get uh, too maudlin here. My my father basically kidnapped us and then dumped us with relatives after he, he couldn't handle us anymore. We weren't rough kids or anything. First with my grandmother and then and, uh, my aunt and uncle and, and my wonderful cousins in Minnesota, who I only met once before. And I'm in the school. And it's kind of country and jock at the same time. And I'm this little kind of effeminate little boy who loves theater and art. And the kids are beating me up in the playground, threatening me. And, you know, I don't know why I, I thought I doing The Wizard of Oz in front of the class, but the teacher found out. Um, I, I, of course, I knew I loved acting. And I performed for the class. In retrospect, thinking about me skipping around the room as Dorothy with a basket and playing the, the lion, the scarecrow, singing, sitting on the desk with my legs dangling and being very aware of the image I'm setting, trying to be Judy Garland, being Dorothy, sitting on the desk, singing Over the Rainbow. But at the end, I got this standing ovation, and I was like, whoa. But the best thing was I no longer got beat up. And kids weren't calling me fairy or, or whatever, queer or whatever the words were then sure. um, on the playground, and I mm. felt safe. Because all my cousins uh, who were around my age, they were all girls, so they weren't going to protect me. <laughs> <laughs> So do you wonder if it had something to do with being able to command a presence? Like when people can establish a presence, you're bigger than them, even though you're literally smaller than them. But when when people see that you can that you can command the attention of the group, that I think elevates you at some level in people's minds. I think storytelling to begin with, even without any histrionics, is is important. Good stories are important. Certainly The Wizard of Oz is one. And I was pretty aware at a younger age that I was talented. I could sing and I could move well and I could act different characters. I mean, I see my... I see, my own students, I see, you know, replicas of myself today when I teach uh, sixth graders. So, yeah, that has a lot to do with it. Having the confidence. Well, I have stage fright, and I always tell my students who have stage fright that I'm horrible before I go on stage. I'm horrible standing in the wings a few hours before. But once I get on stage and I'm able to become someone else, I'm hiding behind this character, and I don't need to worry anymore. They can laugh because they're not laughing at me. Even if I make a mistake, as long as I'm in character, that character made the mistake. Right, right. One of my favorite analogies when I'm trying to teach my own children how to be less afraid, I I always say it's kind of like jumping into a pool. Once you're in the air, you know you're going to get wet, and you know you're going to be cold, and it might be a little uncomfortable, but it's not going to kill you, and then eventually you're out of it. And it's funny that, you know, um, not that I'm going to dwell on negative, but I learned how to swim because my um, horrible father just took each of us and threw us in a deep section of a pool that, you know, was way over head. It's it's astounding how common that is, right? (laughs) And he said, swim. (laughs) And um, he did the same thing with cigarette and and coffee. And I don't like cigarettes to this day. I don't like coffee. (laughs) Swimming, I like. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So one out of three, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So then you come back to New York, and then as a person who's obviously entranced with musicals and soundtracks, you discover Broadway. So how did that kind of mesh for you? Coming back to New York and being reunited with my mom, and she remarried, which was the best thing that ever happened to her or us, and my stepfather is just such a loving, wonderful guy, Alan. And um, they went to Broadway shows all the time. Uh, They went to Broadway shows, and he went to the Giants and Jet 
games, mostly Giants. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> from that time. My parents, we I grew up in New Jersey, and my parents are from that same generation where, like, you really you could spend twenty dollars and see a play. Yeah. You could get into a Jets game, but it was not. It's it, it just like I have to save up for twelve years to go and see a and see a play. And they would just go on a Friday night the way we'd go to a movie. Very, I'm jealous of that lifestyle. Oh yeah. And and they saw all of the latest shows like um they saw, you know, Fiddler on the Roof and and Mame uh, uh, when I was older applause and I'm I'm um I can't remember all the wonderful Oh, Man of La Mancha. And then what would happen is mom would buy the um the record album and although it was in their um section of records I was the only one who listened. She didn't even really listen. So I really kind of secretly always thought she bought them for me. I didn't go with them to see a Broadway show. I did go to a, a, a giant game. Alan took, I have two brothers, and he would take all of us boys. I only went to one because all I wanted to do was eat hot dogs. I didn't really <laughs> care about the game. And it was cold. <laughs> Broadway was this just wonderful place. But in the meantime, even though I read the synopsis of the stories, the movie soundtracks, I could relate closer to because the movies were on TV. Even if they were cut to a horrible 90 minutes, which a lot of them were when I was living in New York, uh, they, they were shown on a 430 movie. I would, I would buy a TV guide the way other people buy racetrack forms or something. And you plan your on. week out. I plan my week out. And then as soon as I got a cassette recorder, <laughs> I was up late night. I was putting it and I was recording and designing record album covers. So I, I think somewhere I really wanted to do that maybe as a career if I wasn't going to be writing or starring in a Broadway show or, or whatever. But the covers were beautiful. They were like works of art, some of them. <laughs> Now, you spent most of your career as an actor and then as a teacher. Um, how did writing come into that? I always liked writing, and I have saved things forever. I have files. Originally in notebooks, I have these black sketchbooks, and they go back to college days. And I'd write ideas down and essays and things like that and ideas for stories. But I never really thought I would necessarily be a writer. And then I was writing curriculum for critical thinking skills, things I wasn't had no knowledge of. And mm-hmm. I had, I'm saying, well, if I can do this, why don't I write about something I like? <laughs> right, so, right. So I was directing um, Peter Pan in New Jersey, and this is about 25, uh, maybe more years ago. We wanted to film some of the numbers so that the kids could have them as a souvenir, but legally you're not supposed to do that. And I said, well, what if we do a documentary? Then we could film the numbers and, and then have some give some knowledge about the history of Peter Pan. And most of us, I guess, just thought Disney or Mary Martin. I had no idea that it went back to 1904. My kids couldn't really do their research, so I started going to Lincoln Center Library of Performing Arts to do research and started researching other places and made this documentary film with the kids and then realized there's a book here. Yeah, and, and and someone had suggested, oh, why don't you go for your um, a master's uh, for theater? And I already had an MFA. I said, well, I'm already making not enough money. Why would I want to spend more <laughs> money to make no money? I said, I think I'm going to do this book and get it published. And right. that was the Peter Pan Chronicles, my first book. And then that was traditionally published. And then yes. um, there was a second edition released. Yeah. Uh, so actually what happened was after that came out, my former wife and I got divorced. And I moved down to be close to my son in Virginia. Within the first year, another book company wrote to me and they wanted a similar book called The Art of Peter Pan. I signed a contract and they gave me like $2,500 when I signed. And when I was finished, I'd received the other. And they wanted me to do it in six months and I did. (laughs) And I gave it to them. And then they decided to make calendars instead. I had to sign a statement when I received this second $2,500 that the book would not be used. And I didn't really like the book that much anyway, so that wasn't a big problem. (laughs) Yeah. You know? So, um, and then I waited and another company kept writing to me, but I didn't like the way their illustrations were being reproduced. And finally, 
um, I wrote to them and I said, would you be interested in, again in a second edition? Because I wanted to fix things that I didn't do the first time. Right. They said yes. And I That's signed a contract cool. and, and got to kind of fix what I didn't like. And process. now, how did you go about pitching that book? I mean, that's not, that doesn't seem like an easy the, book to the pitch. The first time. Yeah, yeah. I had written an outline of the whole book and done my research already, gone to England and everything. And I wrote three chapters that I would send out for perusals. I sent to 50 publishers and I started sending out to the smallest publishers possible. And then it ended up, it was a big publisher that took the book. Wow. I was advised by um, some publishers not to write the book this way, to do it the way so-and-so had done it. Or, and I actually, Miles Kruger, who's a wonderful writer about musical theater, I wrote to him and I said, you, I've been advised to write my book like your showboat book. And I told him what I was doing. He said, no, you need to do it the way you're doing it and find a different publisher. That's cool. And then one day I'm in school and I get a phone call, um, the 50th query letter that's sent out. And they that's, said, oh, we want to publish your book. That's <laughs> wonderful. Yes. So not only do you get the first bolt of lightning that you know a traditional publisher says, yes, you get the second bolt where you get to fix all the stuff. Because after you publish, you always find something you're like, oh, I wish I could have done this. Mm-hmm. or I should, you know. It takes a lot of courage to even read the book because as you're going through, it you're does. like, oh, you know what? I didn't feel great about it when I wrote it. And now, oh, I wish I didn't. Do it. Well, and at the time, actually, I, I, I was really thrilled. Well, and then the reviews come in. Oh, he, oh, the author is just a little too excited about this or that. And I go, oh, yeah, you know, they're right, or, you know, and that kind of thing. And then I think years later, I read this young lady's review about the book, and she said, it's so the same, and blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, she's right. And I, I wrote her a note even saying, you're right. And then she wrote an email back to me saying, I was so young and stupid. And she said, I had no idea. When I looked back at that book, I said, I loved what you did. I, I said, well, ironically, your email helped me a lot in, I think, making a better book the second time. You know, you write the thing and all the people that say, oh, this is wonderful. This is great. They're easily dismissed. But then that one person that hates it, that's the one you focus on. And we're like, yeah, I know it's wrong. I know sometimes for me anyway, I value criticism sometimes more than I value an accolade because I, I, I don't know. I guess sometimes I feel like did you read it? Did you even know how bad I did? You know, so I don't know. So when oh, you yeah. say that you take the... And we had um, in email, when we were going back and forth, I had said to you, I was I was down on, uh, I guess, on politics and things, but I had said at one point, you know, uh, I said, sometimes I question what I'm doing. Is it worth it when the world is going through what it's going through right now and in our country? But um, uh, I said, but I have that little voice that... Um, which I talk to my students about, that I have to constantly push away, which says, who the hell do you think you are writing a book? Who do you think you are doing pottery? Who do you think you are appearing on a stage? And I've had that voice forever, but thank goodness in theater, it's the role that I hide behind that I don't mm-hmm. have to worry. And in art and in writing, it's a product. It's not me they're attacking. They're attacking the product and, and right. I haven't been attacked. I mean, really. Sure. You know, I haven't. I've gotten actually very nice reviews. Um, so I'm like, I'm kind of delighted that people are open to it that I don't know. <laughs> right. So this this book, For the Record, it is personal. With each chapter, you kind of pair a soundtrack or a musical, a Broadway play with something that is kind of pertinent to your life. So it's almost like half music, half memoir. Some of what you're talking about with, like, with your family and with trying to figure out who you are, you mix it really nicely with humor and wit. But did you find that it was hard to really step out? Yeah, I have to confess the chapters 
where I discuss being gay. I directed a play a few years ago at our school, 10 years ago, and it was one that um, I had directed several plays at the school and they were successful and Godspell. And, and then I was asked to head the gay, I forget what they called the club at the time, but it, essentially a gay lesbian club. I didn't know what to do. So all of my actors joined the club and we did a play an original musical called Pet Sounds, which was about a boy who's afraid to come out of the closet. And the kid is essentially me, but we wrote it through improvisation and the kids all had so much to offer. And we got permission to use songs that Petula Clark had recorded on the premises that the kids are performing. And Petula Clark's coming to New York City to watch their performance and do a song in their show at the High School of Performing Arts. And we couldn't perform in school the show once the principal found out that there was a scene in it that was going to, there was not going to be no kissing scene, but he was going to suggest a kiss between the two boys. And he was a really nice guy. And he said, you're going to have to find someplace else. I know there's going to be problems. And we did. And it became news all over the country. And you can just look this up any day about pet sounds. And well, in the process, they asked me when I'm being interviewed, are you gay? And I said, yeah. Later I thought, oh, that's strange. They didn't ask the principal, are you straight? Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I had already basically outed myself. I was always out in school and teaching. My students all know and mm. friends and everything. So in writing the book, I said, well, I'm just going to do it the way I typically do it with humor. Right. Um, and uh, I, I wanted to be careful not to put anything in there that would hurt my former wife or anyone. Um, and uh, I knew I wanted to put stories I had written, some and some. I tell my students, I tell other people, and they laugh. They, oh, you need to write that down. And then I, I read Wishful Drinking, a very personal and such a funny memoir. And I thought, if she can do that, I can, I can do this. I did read a review where one of the writers said that all of the stories really aren't about collecting records. And I didn't try to fool anybody. It's the, it's the confessions of a vinyl soundtrack junkie. But the real confession is I relate everything to music. Even when I'm talking about my pet, Blue, right. who passed away, my first thing was, I'll call that Am I Blue? That's a wonderful song. It was in a Barbra Streisand movie. And then I thought, oh, that's too gay. Um, <laughs> why don't we, why don't we go back? You don't seem back- like the kind of guy that says that very <laughs> let's, go back, really. let's, let's go back further and uh, um, how much is that doggy in the window? Because I love the album cover. So everything relates to songs and everything relates to movies and music. And I'm realistic to separate myself, but that dreamer part of me loves doing that. The decision to do it independently, my second book came out last year. Unless Penguin hunts me down for some reason, I don't see why I would go through a small publisher rather than an independent publisher. There's not a huge difference to me. And you decided that you wanted to do this, publish this independently. Can you talk about? I actually been had been working on in the last three years, two books at once, a children's book, which I finished and um, illustrated and written. And this, I knew with the children's book, I wanted to go with a um, traditional, but Dale, my partner, whom I just recently married, he suggested I do it myself because he says, you really don't see much in paychecks. And I really don't after that, you know, after the initial uh, front money, there's nothing. I said, you know, I, I, I think that might be kind of a fun process. Uh, I was really afraid a bit. The relationship with an editor is really cool. Um, Very much so. That's probably the best part. Not with everybody else in the company. The editor, that's great. And the advice you get. But I decided, and I looked around a little bit, and then I decided to go with CreateSpace. It was a great learning experience. I enjoyed, even though they're editors, um, you don't have their last name, and you just can't call up and say, you know. Hey, Carol, tell me about this. (laughs) But I actually often did ask to speak to Diane or another person if they were there. I originally was going to format the book myself, and there were originally over 200 photos that 
that were going in the book. I can't tell you how much I spent in the three years, different photos from different places. Oh, goodness. (laughs) So they didn't go in, though, because as I was formatting, and then I would go on their space where you learn things, they said, oh, don't do it this way. And I'd already spent a lot of time doing it that way. (laughs) But then I realized the book isn't about the photos. Isn't it about all the albums? It's about the stories. And then Diane, one day talking to her, one of the editors, she said, yeah, Bruce, you don't need more photos. And um, you don't need to be in color. I wanted the book to be in color, and I got my proof in color. But it was going to be 25 It had to be over $25 for a person to buy this little book, you know, yeah. which is about eleven ninety nine. And I would have made <laughs> 58 cents a copy. And then if the book sold overseas or other places, I would have been owing money. For each yeah, copy. exactly. Yeah. So I went black and white and they, they were, they were really fantastic. I bought the cover photo. It's of Judy Garland listening to records when she's 16 working on the wizard of Oz. And they asked me what I want for the cover. I said, this uses photo and keep it a sepia tone. Right. And then that's all I said. Oh, and I didn't want my photo to be on the back. Instead, use a record album cover. This is the first cover that I've been thrilled with. And I actually had a voice in, you don't have a voice in no. the cover with, I didn't even, I, I, I lost the title fight in my... Oh, what was it? Really? Yeah, my, mine is the creatively named Delaware Beer. The company only put out one other book called Delaware Beer that month, so it wasn't like a problem. I think when you start, especially when you first start out, you don't realize how little control... You, you're, you're like, I'm going to do all the work, and then they're like, no, we're going to take your words, and that's th- thanks for the words, and we'll do the marketing stuff. And you know what? They're, they've been at it longer. Oftentimes, they're better at it, and it's good that especially the first time or the first couple times that you have a sense of what goes on. As, as you're saying, after a while, you're like, you know what? I would like a larger voice in it because I have, I'm the one who's going to have to sit at the table with it like a mook, and I want it to look nice, and I want to be proud of it, and I want to know that I had some say in how this got done. And, and practical matters, too, the last book. And I love the way, oh, they edited the book. Uh, it's um, Peter Pan on stage and screen. Mm-hmm. But they insisted on adding 1904 to 2010. Well, that kind of dates the yeah, book already. Right. And I, I sure. asked if they could not. The cover has Haley Mills. It's a wonderful photo of Haley Mills. But I discuss Haley Mills in one paragraph in the book. And to me, a Mary Martin or somebody a little bit where people you recognize to see it. Yeah. would. But it still looks fantastic and I'm proud of it. But this book, you know, I've gotten people, uh, somebody wrote on Amazon, um, you should buy the book just for the cover. (laughs) That's like, yeah. It's shiny and glossy and it kind of harkens back to, you know, when you were a kid and the shiny cover matters. And then of course, Judy Garland um, listening. I mean, you know, how uh, a friend of Dorothy kind of thing is that? It's also interesting that it's kind of a memoir. And were these collected individually or was this sitting down and knocking it out? I had written some of the stories over the years as emails to people. And I have files. I have a Drew file. That's my son. And whenever I have a story I pull out, um, I'll change the character's name because I also write plays and things. And Drew will go, oh, that's me. I said, yeah. Um, so were there some of those? And then there were other stories that I just had outlines for that I would tell. And my students or faculty members where I taught or friends would say, you need to tell those stories in print because we love hearing them again. I'm known as a storyteller and uh, I just decided that I could use those stories. When I had decided I was going to write this book, there was a story I had written about when my dog Blue 
passed away, Dalmatian, and how it affected me. I had sent an email out with a story, and then it's a few years later when I'm starting this book, and I didn't, I couldn't find it. Uh-huh. I could not. I lost it, and I just wrote an email, and I said, "Is it possible that anybody might have that email?" And I got just a bunch of responses from people in the school. Some I don't didn't even know that well. The teachers, I said, "Yes, we love that story. We kept it it's here," <laughs> and they Fantastic. sent it all back to me, and it's it's verbatim in the way I wrote it to them. You know, when it comes to being a writer, everything is fodder. Everything's going to be grist for the mill. It's some point. The fact that it's music or art. As writers, we are always sort of sticking things away in the files in our brains. Tony actually emails himself and the subject line is genius. And then he'll email himself the genius idea. So, I mean, we all kind of go through this process. I do the same thing. (laughs) I I actually email an idea I have and I send it to myself. I get up in the middle of a night and I have a dream and I go, oh, that is too good. And then what I do is I quickly write that synopsis. Now, I used to write it in the books, but now I have it if I just write it right on the um, email and I send it to myself so I don't forget it. Because you wake up later. Now, half the time when I later, I go, what was I thinking? Usually I'm loaded. I'm I'm usually awake, but... (laughs) He's like half in the bottle of bourbon and he's like, this is a great idea. And no, it's not. Yeah, but but even there's some things in the book here that I sent myself an email said, use later because you're not really quite awake yet. You were saying earlier that you were just getting into Twitter and uh, we usually kind of like to talk about how we promote ourselves, especially when it comes to the the independent work, but all of the work, because if you're going to make a go at it, you, you have to get out there and get your face in front of people. Even with a book that's published traditionally, you have to do that. Yeah. The options were less, of course, 20 um, some odd years ago, they would send you on a tour, you know, to sign and yeah. make nothing. <laughs> um, that's, that's just the most humiliating thing is yeah. to have to sit back there and say, please don't make me look so lonely. Oh, it's awful. Isn't it? and if you're a famous writer, they're lining up, but you're just like, okay, let me, what can I do to make it look like I'm really busy? And this is before the cell phone. So you're writing something down. But I decided with this one to start experimenting more. I did send out the book to lots of different uh, reviewers, uh, New York Times, uh, publishes weekly. I just received a email from them two weeks ago that I passed the first hurdle. And they said, well, that doesn't mean you're going to get reviewed. Now, before... It, it doesn't mean you're definitely not going to get reviewed. Yeah. And there's a separate <laughs> section for in, for independent oh, uh, really? writers, which I didn't know about, because before the publisher just did it. And then I would just look and see if I knew someone was associated with a magazine or this or that. I sent to radio stations. I just said, let me do things I haven't done before. Before and be a little bolder, mm. you know. Last but not least, where can where can people find you? Do you have websites and things like that? I'm. Uh, let's see. <laughs> I'm really slow on this because um, the process of editing. I didn't realize how long it was going to take me with having different editors and the designers and things. So now I'm doing this thing where I I went on Facebook, of course, to say something. I chose Create Space as to publish the book because they're associated with Amazon. So right away, there's exposure. And I've already gotten checks, which is like, whoa, this is really nice. And reviews. Now I recognize, there's like four reviews. I recognize... um, All the names, right? Well, yeah, one of my... One one person wrote... None of my friends have reviewed my book, so four is more than right. Yeah. Brucifer. Somebody wrote Brucifer, and I go, that's one of my students or a friend, because only my students call me Brucifer. Yeah. And... uh, it's just a delight when you read other people who have liked the book 
and then somebody wrote to me from ARCS. It's um, and I'm going to be really bad. It's American um, Recording Magazine that basically reviews recordings and and the tradition of recording and and also how we're uh, saving recordings. That the writer, I don't know the writer except that. I bought a few of his albums, this reviewer, and he wrote to me um, and sent a review a few weeks ago. And I'm, I'm not even allowed to say anything yet until it comes out in May. But what I do is I, I, um, I do it the old-fashioned way also. I look up colleges, libraries. I've had cards printed of the cover of the book. Right. And then I send out those postcards so that people are aware of it and the price. And I say, I relate uh, where I've lived before, any place. I say, hey, I lived here and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I have my other book, a an account, Peter Pan on Stage and Screen. But when the book came out in October, I'm also teaching. And it's really hard to balance everything. Right. I direct plays at school. I practically live at school. Now uh, the play's over and I'm not doing another play after school. So I have more time to do things like, uh, had, had I mentioned Twitter, that I yeah. opened a Twitter account, to right. it, but I haven't done anything with oh, it right. yet. And I can't even remember the name I had on it. <laughs> well, we'll make sure we put all the links for Amazon, especially. We'll make oh, sure thanks. they go up in the podcast episode and make sure that's all there in the show notes. So. The cool thing is it's available and you can order it in a bookstore, which I love. Kindle I haven't done yet because that was the next step. And I said, breathe, two, three, four. Right. Wait till the play's over. Everything comes in small steps. Yes, yes. And you know what comes in really small steps? Your limericks and my haikus. (laughs) Yes, it's just a little tiny line. So if you go to sowhatsyourstorypodcast.com and go to the contact link, you can send us a word and your address and we will... Make a limerick, make a haiku. We'll put it on that postcard, slap a stamp on it and send it into the mail just like it's old times. We will pay a man to bring stuff to your house. What do you think about that? We'll pay him <laughs> 42 cents. All right, Stephanie. Well, this is a part of the show now where you thank the guests. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for being here. It was a pleasure talking with you. Oh, this has been fantastic. Thanks. So What's Your Story was recorded at Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Visit us at SoWhatsYourStoryPodcast.com where you can find past episodes, guest bios, show notes, and all sorts of fun stuff. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. And if you like it, then feel free to give us a great review. Tell your story.